welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Dive. Dive is a fully outsourced BI as a service solution, providing an enterprise grade data platform and services for gaming studios on all platforms. Dive's BI tools and service of data experts replace the need for a full in-house BI team, saving studios hundreds of thousands of dollars yearly. If you're interested in learning how Dive can unleash the power of data in your game's business and save money doing so, simply head to dive.games or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have great panelists, as always. As uh, as you all know, the ever-lively Aaron Bush here. we got Matt Dion and Anil Dasgupta here. How are you guys doing today? Hey, awesome. Hey. Sweet. We good. It's a good way to do it. Cool, cool. Lots of good stuff going on. we got some great topics today, of course. Uh, Baldur's Gate uh, 3, we're going to touch on that a little bit more. A little follow-up on when we discussed before. Dark and Darker, re-emerging. Uh, C limited update and fr- free fires, uh, free fall. Right, you can say that one uh, yourself there, Aaron. A little tongue twister for us. Uh, PlayStation Portal update. That should be interesting. And uh, Ubisoft and a Blizzard Activision deal uh, around streaming should be pretty interesting as well. And then NetEase pushing west. So uh, why don't we actually just get right into the Baldur's Gate update? What's going on with that? Sure. Well, it's everyone's favorite current darling game. It's great to see the resurgence. And I think something that a lot of us were asking is how much has this game actually sold? How's it done? Well, we got our answer through a pretty unlikely source. It was actually announced in Belgium, giving out Steam sales numbers. And it's been it's sold over 5 million copies, 5.2 million copies. So I think that's an incredible achievement for a game that hadn't been released for a long time. Um, the, the spot quiz for the panel, how many copies do you think Baldur's Gate 2 sold? Lifetime. Significantly less. Yeah, it it was two million, so it's already done. You know, two and a half times that amount. That's pretty good, I guess, showing a nostalgia effect. So, yeah, just what I think it's really good to touch on. I know this has been talked about in a previous panel, but amazing to see a game is really kind of lean on the microtransactions, just good old fashioned gameplay. A game that I'm very uh, fond of, especially the older ones playing it in my youth. Great to see it do, and I wonder how will it do because this is just on PC. This is not even taken into account console sales of which the inevitable ports are coming out so where do we think this roller coaster will end or is it up only for Baldur's Gate? yeah doesn't the playstation version come out in another you know couple of weeks here it hasn't even gone live yet exactly exactly it's pretty have you played it i've just no oh yeah no (laughs) i mean anil obviously has right Right? I, I, I actually haven't, but I have observed someone watching wow. it, which is basically the boomer equivalent of playing games these days. I don't know if this happens to you. The, the real live Twitch? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 but I actually, I, I watch my, my flatmate play it, actually, which is like a bit different. So you get to like ask and have more interaction kind of thing. Um, it looks cool. I just know that like, just so you know, first game I ever worked on in the industry was also a D&D game. So I have a little bit of flashbacks and PTSD because when you've got these massive books of how the system mechanics work, it's pretty in-depth and it's really built on that. It looks cool, though, I've got to say. 
it's really fun as someone who's like, I don't know, 20 to 30 hours into it. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm not a D and D person at all. I like understand the rules at a sort of fundamental level, but I'm not, I don't really play Dungeons and Dragons and I'm very much enjoying this game. It's like a slower pace than most RPGs, which I think is by design. Um, but just incredible, like freedom of choice in, in every interaction and how you approach them and what you do with your characters and how you role play. It's, it's really, um, an incredible achievement. Yeah, I was thinking about um, what do what does Larian Studios do next? Like, where do they go from here? Like, we've talked about this before with other studios. Like, you know, after Elden Ring, uh, like, where does like that studio go? Like, once you've reached the pinnacle. Um, and so I was, you know, reading through a few interviews, and obviously, Baldur's Gate Three still has legs. As we said, it's not on PlayStation yet. Um, they haven't said anything about DLCs, but honestly, like it wouldn't surprise me given the success. They they, they, they did to. it in the past before it was cool. I was going to say like Baldur's yeah. Gate One and on PC used to have expansion, so mm. you know they would make an expansion about a year after the original one. So you can bet that's coming for sure. Yeah, so so that'll come. So this game still has lags, uh, but what was interesting from the interviews I read is that. I think what the studio is doing next is not actually another game of this kind of scope. Again, that's going to take, you know, six years to pull off. I think what they're going to try to do is um, games that are smaller in scope, which will still probably be, you know, pretty, pretty big, um, but work on, you know, more than one at a time. So, you know, they can also de-risk the business a bit, make it slightly less lumpy. We'll see what that actually turns into. I'm not, I'm not even sure how much they have fully planned out what's next um given they're in the the heat of right now um but anyways that was just kind of interesting to see and i am always curious where these companies on the top how they choose to kind of take that as an evolution step to to kind of position themselves for a different even larger future to come yeah i'm, I'm kind of curious if, if it will bring back any other D uh like worlds and things like that because there's a ton of different worlds like Ravenloft and I mean no one's really done like a good Dark Sun for example there's there's so many properties they could bring back uh, that could use I imagine that engine right because it's not like the rules get all that different in the other uh, modules or worlds or whatever like they want to call it at this point uh, so I imagine there's an opportunity even if they're not the ones to do it to license it out to Wizards of the Coast to have another company do some stuff maybe uh, maybe they don't do as good a job or anything, but they, you know, it could be an opportunity to reuse that engine if they've, because it's not easy to execute on like a tabletop role playing system into a CRPG. Like it's been done a lot, but like it's it's difficult to do, right? Like because you have to adapt uh, a, something that where like half of it's your imagination, the other half's like deciding which rules to apply and all that, and apply it to a consistent real time like thing that you're doing. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a long history of it, but D and D is not like sat still either. It's changed pretty dramatically over the years many times to the point where there's like forks off of older editions and things like that into other games. And uh, so, I mean, plenty of opportunity, I think, for them to revisit some of the other franchises. And it's been interesting to see a lot of classic CRPGs come back. Like remember when there was a Wasteland 2 and 3 that got kickstarted and then Shadowrun. Uh, and then, of course, we had Cyberpunk. Like it seems like the old tabletop RPGs and CRPGs are getting new life again. Like I even just looking, I was like, did, did Neverwinter Nights get a second life? Oh yeah, there, there was a release in 2018. And like, uh, it, it, I think it's just, it's people our age, right? Like that, that played these games. Yeah, when they were yeah, yeah. I remember Planescape Torment managed to get a comeback. Like, uh, so it's just like, did Icewind point, Dale some, ever get a re-release? Which one? I did you know what? Icewind Dale was, so yeah, yeah, there was a couple of these games. That, so yeah, 
early if it hasn't yet, it will D&D. at this point, That's right? Like, point. especially yeah. after the success of this game, it's it's really interesting to, to like. I'd almost like put money on like the next property. Like, I feel like the only one that really didn't succeed was Cyberpunk, and even then, it it probably did to an extent monetarily. Like, obviously, like they you know had to give a lot of refunds and things like that, but it still sold a lot prior to that, right? And it it has helped the franchise like still be really interesting to a lot of people and. It probably helped the it helped the tabletop RPG a lot, even if it didn't help the the company that much. Uh, you know, just a lot of opportunity here that I think is kind of interesting. Also, I noticed uh, when I was looking at the numbers for Baldur's Gate, it peaks hard on Sundays for some reason. Like everyone's, I mean, not for some reason. I think it's pretty obvious why, but that's like <laughs> at this point, do we like just make that like uh, weekly Baldur's Gate three day? Everyone just hits it on Sundays. You can just see it like it's like a huge gain on Sundays and then a drop on Mondays. Like no one's calling in sick Monday, but every Sunday. People are hitting ballers get three. So I've noticed it's kind of dropped off a bit more this time. So I'm curious to see if we get that resurgence or if it's just like everyone transitioning over to PlayStation at that point. But uh, it'll be, I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see, like you guys said, what, uh, you know, if this has legs, what uh, comes next for the company? Do they just even like license this stuff out or make something smaller that's d and know. A lot of good opportunity. But uh, speaking of medieval stuff, trying to make a comeback, dark and darker. Great transition, great segue. So, um, Dark and Darker uh, has reemerged. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this game, it is sort of a medieval fantasy themed uh, first person shooter. It's like an extraction shooter, though. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, your typical swords and axes and magic and, and these sort of medieval tropes rather than your standard like military simulator. But it's an extraction shooter. It's it's quite hardcore, uh, very difficult. And this is a game that came out earlier this year, like February, and and kind of ha- had a a moment there where it was quite popular with streamers, and, and it kind of took off. This was like um, I don't know if you can even call it early access at that point. It was uh, still quite early, still quite rough. Um, but anyways, this this game was created by a group called Iron Mace, which is a group of Korean developers. Um, and where it sort of picked up a bit of controversy, um, <clears throat> is that it was taken down. Um, it, well, it received a DMCA notice, uh, from Nexon. So the developers of Iron Mace used to work at Nexon. I, I guess they were accused of stealing some assets or, or something else from, uh, from Nexon. And so Nexon, uh, went after that, went after this game and this company legally and got it removed from Steam. Uh, and so the news recently, as of a couple weeks ago, is that the game has reemerged um, after a, a number of challenges uh, like that. So uh, a brief timeline here. So I mentioned it came out in February. In March, it was delisted with the DMCA notice. There was also a raid on their headquarters uh, by the police in Korea. Um, and after that, they tried to launch a GoFundMe campaign to continue to fund development. They continued to distribute um dark and darker through like discord and BitTorrent. um so they're like really uh scrapping and clawing trying to figure out how can we get this game out to people how can we keep building this thing um recently the lawsuit has now been dismissed in the u.s but only because the judge determined this would be better heard in korea this is not really a u.s case so it's still kind of an active ongoing dispute and you cannot play the game in korea um but now you can play it uh elsewhere so the game has reemerged and it was um, distributed directly through Iron Mace. They've got their own launcher that they've uh, released called uh, Blacksmith, I think. Uh, and then you can also get it through some 
um, indie gaming website called Chaff Games. Um, now, I had never heard of Chaff Games before. A lot of the people who followed this game had never heard of it. And so that was one thing that kind of caused some question marks, let's say. People were like, well, you know, what is this storefront? Why can't we just go to any of the other ones? Um, and then there was all sorts of problems when they released this. So they made a big announcement on Twitter. Oh, we're back. Come check it out. We're in early access. And uh, then players couldn't get in. They couldn't download the game. They couldn't buy it. Um, whether it was through directly through Iron Mace or through Chaff Games, they were having transactions failed. There was just like too much volume, too much interest, I guess, a lot of technical difficulties. Um, so that was one sort of major hurdle. Um, and, you know, I guess it's not surprising that, they, you know, first they were doing BitTorrent and stuff like that. Now they've got some unknown website. It just has this air of mystery around it. And also, like, if you're not used to, like, these sort of weird back channels of gaming, um, it's uh, maybe concerning. Like, am I going to get my game? Am I like sending my money to a scam? I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. And then lately um, they've had a bunch of issues now, you know, they've gotten over the access issues, but now they've got a bunch of issues with cheaters and hackers in the game. So it's been a bumpy road for dark and darker. Um, but I think it's like a, a fascinating case study. Um, in a couple of regards. Uh, uh, one is that it's an extraction shooter and we've yet to see one like really take off. They're all quite hardcore. Um, this one seems to have built up a following, but the the second aspect that's interesting is like, how do you, how do you distribute your game? Uh, how do you, um, you know, continue to fund this like effort um, when you're faced with challenges setting aside, you know, how valid they are or not. You're, you're facing these challenges from incumbents that are like, we don't want you to build this game. We're going to go after you in court. Um, and so they're having to take all these sort of strange paths to the public to get their game out there. So anyways, I, I just think it's a really interesting case study and I'll be curious to see how it unfolds because it's still in early access. They're still making the game. What do you all make of this? First of all, has, has anyone here played the game? Have you had a chance to try it out? Yeah. And it's uh it is still pretty hardcore. It's, it's a very, like, it's one of those games where if you play by yourself, you're, you're going to get hosed. Pretty much, uh, it, it seemed like a very team-oriented game, which uh, surprised me because like a lot of those extraction shooters aren't. So maybe that was part of the appeal as well. I got to imagine though, like, uh, I mean, how do you how do you accuse another company of stealing generic medieval assets? Like they could have come from anywhere at that point. I don't know. Presumably, they've they've got some data to support their claims. Um, you know, something like half of the development team of Iron Mace used to be at Nexon on this particular project that was uh, supposedly like a, I don't know, a clone or a knockoff or whatever. So I don't know. There, there is some smoke there. I don't know how, how much merit there is to the accusations, but um, presumably Nexon has some reason to pursue this. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're either U S or UK centric. So I'm curious what Korean law is like in terms of that. Like, I mean, we kind of have some idea in general, those kinds of things, but I imagine there's probably some some important differences. And with the U.S. court kind of kicking it over to Korea, I got to imagine like they you know that any of those quirks could come out in the situation. Uh, plus, we don't know what like things are like. For, for all we know, like Nexon has tons of pull in the legal system over there, or doesn't, right? Uh, that, and that could be a big factor uh, in the situations because Nexon's not exactly a small company. Definitely a renegade game, though. So. I'm interested to see, like, I think this will make a fun story down the road if it succeeds and you'll be like, Hey, remember when dark and darker, like had to go super renegade and like put it on BitTorrent and like, uh, have people buy from shady websites and like send Bitcoin practically to like buy the game. Like, I think that's why it's so interesting to me because they are kind of like 
taking this alternative route to the market, let's say. I, I can't imagine that looks favor favorably to the court, though. Like, I mean, again, I don't know what Korean law is like, so it, it, sure. it might not matter. But like, I, I feel like in U.S. courts, you did something like that. The judge would be like, dude, what are you doing? Like uh, contempt of court kind of thing or something like that. I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems like one of those things where that could get you into trouble, where you just look like you're openly trying to defy that DMCA case. Like, I mean, I guess the DMCA, that does that go global? Does that affect uh, Korea and stuff as well, like through the like global um, copyright agreements or is that US centric? I, I don't know, but I think it's more related to like the distribution through Steam specifically being a, a US based company. Um, so what I read is that the, the sort of uh, availability of this game on Steam, it's now in Valve's hands. Um, at least from Iron Mace's perspective, like they think it's sort of all sorted out. And while they can't distribute it in Korea because of the ongoing legal disputes, they view it as like, well, the ball is in Valve's court. We're waiting on them to kind of put our game back up. Who knows how true that is or not, but that's that's been the public stance from Iron Mace. Maybe given the pattern I, I think, things, we'll see it on Epic yeah. suddenly. I was going to say that I think one issue here is there's a bit of a non-compete thing going on here as well. Some of the people that left Nexon to work on this game have started working on the game faster than their, their claws are doing. That is more likely to get people. But I would imagine it would just be a fine rather than I cannot see Nexon in any court being able to pull the, the game down because of it. Well, the question was, uh, like, was Nexon already developing something like that? That's what I'd heard originally, and I don't know how much truth there was. Yeah, to yeah. That. That, so, like, if, if that was the case where it's like, hey, like, they were developing this, and then they moved out to, like, and then just did it independently, that seems like kind of a lot more open and shut, right? If they can prove that. Um, like if they were like, hey, we were working on a medieval extraction shooter with these assets, you know, et cetera. I mean, do we call it an extraction slasher at that point? It's, <laughs> if it's just swords, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, there is crossbows and stuff, but. Yeah, know. there's projectiles, there's magic, there's uh, right. stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it'll, it'll be interesting though. Like it, it, at the very least, I'm, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen some copycats uh, try and get traction off them being off the market and just quickly spinning up something. Uh, even if it's not good, right? And just trying to be like a dark, dark error and trying to, you know, like just get on Steam and, and get something out there as fast as they can before it gets pulled down. Because, um, you know, it's, it, that situation, if, if Nexon is the one like blocking dark and darker, like they're not going to be able to come after you for for copying that name again. And like, what, <laughs> right? It's that kind of situation where I think they're kind of stuck with their battle. So I will see if it gets updated. Uh, I mean, it sucks to have to go through shady stuff. It would definitely be better if it goes through Steam. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, if it's something that's going to get pulled down again, all of a sudden, um, I, I got to wonder where the servers are running as well for that game because it's a multiplayer game, right? So the servers are going to be running somewhere. Um, and if it's a situation where they're running in Korea, obviously that's a big risk. If they're running outside of that in a place that isn't really kind of, you know, outside of Korea's jurisdiction or isn't being run there. I mean, it sounds like given the sort of shady sites they were using and stuff, there's a good chance this is like Pirate Bay kind of territory when it comes to the servers, like running out of the Netherlands or something. But uh I guess we'll see. But uh, speaking of overseas, C Limited uh, and was it Free Fire's Free Fall? Yeah, so C Limited is a company we haven't talked about in a long time, but what's going on right now is pretty interesting. So I thought it deserves a quick update. And as a reminder, C Limited is one of the biggest and most important companies in Southeast um, Asia. It owns Garena, which most notably it publishes Free Fire, uh, but it's also a publisher for other companies that want exposure in the region, like it publishes Call of Duty Mobile, for instance. 
Um, most notably, though, it was a publisher for Riot. Uh, but in what was big news, after 12 years, Riot decided to break up that publishing relationship with Garena, which ended in January of this year. So um, lots of moving pieces on the gaming front. But in the past few days, the company reported its earnings, and I'll skip 95%. Of, of those details. But the main number I want to point out is that their digital entertainment business, which is majority Free Fire, is down 41% um, year over year. And if you look at the numbers last year, it was also down then too. So um, we published a deep dive into Free Fire last year um, that actually did a pretty great job breaking down the game's challenges and why it's been in decline, both for regulatory reasons, like it got kicked out of India, uh, but also for you know game design, monetization, and just localization um, reasons too, um, as it's you know trying to serve people in Latin America and Southeast Asia, etc. Um, so it's it's also worth noting that as you know, one Free Fire declines, two Garena loses its large partnership with Riot, and three also seemingly gave up on M&A because it spun out Phoenix Labs, uh, which it had acquired, and that company is behind Dauntless. Um, it spun them out earlier this year. As all of that happens, it kind of looks like Garena as a rising force in games is... Uh, that story is very challenged right now. Uh, maybe it's over. I don't know, but it's not like a great um, look or time period for them um, right now. And the second tangential thing I want to point out um, that kind of underlies all of this is how critical a, of a role Garena has played in the rise of C-Limited as a whole, which is a $20 billion company today. And, you know, that's a big company, but it actually hit a $200 billion market cap in late 2021. And Garena was super important because it gushed cash because of Free Fire. And those billions of dollars in proceeds were heavily reinvested primarily to subsidize Shopee, which became the largest e-commerce player in Southeast Asia. And so this games business, plus the, the general COVID tailwinds and cheap money at the time, was uniquely the backbone of perhaps the most important scaling business in that entire growing region. Um, but then the world changed. Economics became more grounded again, and C Limited has since had a really hard time adapting. Garena has, uh, you know, Garena taking a step back changed the profitability picture and the reinvestment potential of the entire business. Um, plus, previously raised capital uh, from public markets was used to invest super aggressively into global e commerce expansion, like into Europe and Latin America. And not and just like losing the kind of the pure focus on Southeast Asia. But now that the profit engine has changed and money is more expensive to raise, the entire business is resetting. They're slashing their marketing, they're raising fees, all of that hurts user growth and retention. And now they're finally announcing that it will invest in fulfillment in Southeast Asia in a big way, like Amazon did many years ago and like C Limited should have done many years ago. Um, so it's finally refocusing on its core region. And it's most important business. And all of that is sort of like aside <laughs> from gaming, obviously. Um, but it's all a piece of the same puzzle here. But I guess all in all, to me, this is such a fascinating story of a rising global games publisher um, that kind of got caught up in serving a, a larger purpose than games, primarily e-commerce, but some other stuff. And now it's just getting pummeled <laughs> as the entire business 
around it, navigates a new economic world, and management focuses on e-commerce largely instead of gaming. And as you know, it doesn't really look like Free Fire is going to make any type of notable comeback. And so it just makes me wonder what happens to Garena next. And honestly, I don't know. But my guess is that, um, you know, at least for a while, based on what we see right now, it's probably not going to be anything special or find an incredible upward trajectory again for quite some time, um, which is kind of sad. And maybe uh, even now I could kind of envision it getting spun out or sold one day. So I don't know, but it's a fascinating story all around that we haven't hit on. So I just kind of wanted to to bring that update back up. Well, do you think that's just a case of just running too hot? For example, some companies, they were just like so spectacularly successful. It's, it's impossible to maintain that. Impossible. And this is more of a regression to the mean because kind of global causes and they're just the result of that. I, I agree with what, what, what you suggested there, by the way. I could see either the spin out or it getting sold. It just felt like it was, as I say, unsustainable. Or do you think it is something that they can learn lessons from and they could have doubled down on the position? I think it's both. I mean, I definitely do think, you know, the the era of cheap money and just like, you know, growth stocks being valued at super high multiples. Um, you know, some of that was bubbly or frothy and C-Limited was absolutely caught up in that. Um and if anything, I mean, it used some of that to its advantage to be able to raise money at you know favorable terms. But I think where they did strategically fall short was in how, in part, how they used the money that they raised by spreading themselves too thin, um, by chasing too many projects and chasing too many corners of the world to grow into. Um, so, for example, like you know, they they basically chose to have like a capital light. This is sort of aside from gaming, but. Quickly, like they chose to have a capital light model for going into e-commerce instead of just building fulfillment centers, um, like in their core region. And so now, you know, three, four years later than they should have, they're now finally starting to build that out. And if they had done that sooner, maybe it would have been slower growth, but it would have been more sustainable. Um, competitive advantages wouldn't have to make all the crazy changes they're doing right now to cutting user acquisition and uh, raising fees and all of that kind of thing. But on the gaming side, I mean, they kind of had all of their eggs in one basket with Free Fire. And I think they just have had a really hard time following it up. And I don't even know if they've really tried <laughs> their best to follow it up, to be honest, because they've been so focused on e-commerce and just like these other sides of the business. And they've really just looked at gaming as like a profit center to subsidize everything else. They have, as I mentioned, they made that one acquisition of um, Phoenix Labs, which made Dauntless, but that never really made sense. And they kind of gave in eventually and just spun it back out. Um, Garena has had troubles. Like when you lose Riot as like your primary like pillar of why you were able to have that publishing business in the first place, that's really hard to, to come back from. And again, I think some of that probably could have been better if they were more focused on like truly being their best in gaming instead of all, doing all of these other things. So I think the answer is is a mix, but I don't think that focus is changing. Like I'm sure there absolutely are people in the business that care a lot about gaming, but if management is still you know focusing primarily on other things, it's just going to be hard for this business to get the resources and priority it deserves to if it really wants to become like the next big gaming publisher, you know, gaming company um, out there, I think. 
Did you read uh, uh, Yost's take on on C? I think he was making the case that like um, there is a, a connection to a broader decline in the sort of region, like uh, Southeast Asia, as sort of a you know a consumer region and decline in, in that. Like, what, what, do you do you think that's part of the story? I know you said it's sort of like probably multiple factors here, but um, what do you think? What do you think about that sort of aspect of it? I mean, maybe a little bit in, in terms of just kind of the same mean reversion that, you know, has probably affected like all e-commerce companies around the world. Um, yeah. But in terms of the gaming side, not really. I mean, like Battle Royale peaked a while ago. Free Fire was a phenomenon um, and it's faced much bigger hurdles than just <laughs> Southeast Asia. Right. Yeah. That, was, that was just like a piece of their business. And they actually still make most of their money from north america i think even though it's a small percentage mm. of downloads so um so yeah I, i'm sure it's part of it but it's definitely not the core if only driver here i'd be curious uh, if there's if you know any talent bleed because it's like one of those things where if there was some good talent that was like core there seeing where they go would be like maybe a good indicator of you know some other things that could grow in the, in the process or just seeing a lot of them leaving the ship would be like okay well maybe green free fire is just done um those kinds of things i think are like helpful indicators if you know at all if there's been any talent bleed like that yeah don't think it's done i just think probably under the current structure the game's business is just going to be suffocated and probably can't live up to its full potential um unless it were spun out in some way is my is there any potential they're working on another game they just haven't announced yet and then they're kind of like letting uh, green and free fire be a little bit more on coasting mode wouldn't surprise me, but I haven't heard of anything. Definitely stuff to keep an eye on. Like you said, uh, we haven't talked about them in a while, but maybe maybe they'll do something that'll give us a reason to uh, to dig right back into them at the future here, or maybe one of those ones that just kind of fades out over time and you know had a big one hit wonder kind of thing and moves into fulfillment. Apparently, <laughs> just goes from, <laughs> yeah, from warehouses, a, right? Like from a battle royale to a uh, warehouse simulator. It's just <laughs> it's yeah, quite a transition. But I mean, yeah, it gets goes to show what happens if you are trying to do too much at once. Uh, although, you know, companies like Tencent seem to do pretty fine with putting their, their eggs in a lot of baskets. So, But uh, speaking of uh, trying a lot of random things here, PlayStation Portal, you got an update on that for us. Yeah, so I'll keep this one much briefer. So we knew that Sony was working on a portable device for cloud streaming, and we just got more information about it. This is pretty hot off the press as our time of recording. It's $200. It's called the PlayStation Portal. And, you know, jokingly, it's not the PlayStation Portable anymore because it's not actually that portable. Um, And so previously, when we have talked about this in the past, I was open-minded to it being somewhat successful because people like to play on handheld. Um, But I'm going to increase my skepticism now, as I know Anil was rightly skeptical from, from the very beginning. Of, of our conversations on this. But this is because Sony made the decision for the device to only enable local streaming from a PS5 device through a home Wi-Fi network, essentially. And it's a bit baffling to me that the that PlayStation has their PlayStation Plus premium cloud streaming service as part of their subscription tiers. And that's actually not going to be enabled on their cloud streaming handheld, um, which would allow people to play games on j- just elsewhere, like off of their home Wi-Fi network and 
on company servers instead of really just kind of being streamed from your console. Um, and so I think they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot uh, here, to be honest. And it's definitely not the kind of thing that that many people would want as compared to the alternative. And to be fair, it probably is for justifiable reasons, um, like ensuring the play experience is quality. And if it if they were leaning in another direction, maybe there would be many more issues with the play experience that they want to avoid, which is understandable. Uh, but whatever the case, it's definitely going to limit the attach rate here. Some people will still want it just to be able to play portable at home and you know lie on the couch or the bed and you know not have to be glued to a TV. So it still could be something to that. Um, maybe it'll do slightly better in attach rate compared to like the PSVR, but I don't think this is going to be anything special from what we've seen so far. And this is a first iteration of this kind of device. So it'll probably, they want to level it up and get better in the future. But as for where we are right now, the PlayStation portal is baffling a lot of people. And as a result, it's probably not going to be the, the biggest seller that it could be. Sounds like kind of a why does it exist sort of thing, like where like, yeah, it has use cases, but it, it doesn't sound like it's something they're all in on or wanting to like make a some kind of pillar of their future stuff. And it's like, you know, after all the effort they put into the PSP and the Vita and the innovations they tried to do there, this just feels like a, a side project that someone pushed out. And, you know, maybe they don't even like talk to the other divisions to make this into something bigger. But with such a, like a big price point, like why do you think this even exists? I mean, you've got Steam Deck, you've got all these other things. Uh, you can even just do the Steam Link from your phone. Like you don't even need an actual dedicated device for it. Uh, I mean, Sony could do the same thing. Like they could just you could have a controller on your phone hooked to your PS. I mean, I mean, don't they already have streaming stuff like that? Like where what is the purpose of this device? You think in the the ecosystem? Well, th- this this kind of play is quite common for them though. They've done this kind of like random hardware stuff all over the place right magic high they had this sort of wii competitor with the joysticks and things like this i would even argue their vr is the same i think there are some consistencies of sony like this is still a very premium luxury product in the sense that you will be able to have the authentic experience like you'll be able to play 60 frames per second ps5 game yes it is limited to your home but in terms of the experience and the quality it will it, i would imagine it will actually be better than a steam deck because it's going to be you know cutting edge ps5 top of line graphics so there's something to be said there i can't under explain to you the reasoning behind it other than it does feel that they do do this quite commonly maybe it's something that they do like to try things out every now and again before they want to fully commit to it anyway but you always get this if it's not this there'll be some other random thing that Sony tries again in, in like a year or two or something. They do still have, you know, we know them best maybe from the PlayStation, but they do a lot more hardware than just that. And even if you can see this one, like they, they're pushing it, not just the device itself, but like their their earpods that work with the system as well. And home cinema almost is touching a little bit on those kind of channels too. So it, it's really like they're taking they want to show it off perhaps. That's, that's I mean, to me, it feels even a bit similar to the way that Apple are doing it with, you know, their VR thing as well. And you're never really expecting it to be a huge seller, but they want to establish a luxury range, see if it goes anywhere, and then they might go mass market thereafter, but they don't really expect it to. 
I, I can't imagine that like they, they have some magical tech that defies all the problems with like home Wi-Fi and things like that. Like there's people who can't even go two rooms on their Wi-Fi because of all the materials and houses. There's no way this is going to be a premium experience. I mean, unless they're using some other new technology that's like straight from the PlayStation to the device that has nothing to do with any of that other stuff. I, I just can't see how they're going to be able to guarantee that premium experience. You're trying to talk about 60 frames a second across a house. Uh, and if you're talking about a luxury item, it's not going to be a small house. You know, no one's living in a shack spending money on this. Like this is for people that have multiple rooms that are too far from the PlayStation to play it. Like, you know, their, their golden bathroom, you know, 10 floors away is not going to be able to play this. Yeah, we'll see. I think it, it's really just a bet on where they think the industry is heading or just what will be possible in the future. Kind of same as with VR. And this is like a stepping stone to ensure that they're in the game and that they're investing in R&D and that they will be ready and they'll have learned from their experience and be leveled up by the time something like this is potentially possible to be done at a greater scale in, in the future. Personally, I'm pretty bullish on like kind of a reemergence of handheld gaming and just, um, you know, whether it's kind of a support accessory to a primary console or even like a replacement in some ways like a Steam Deck is, I think that we will see a, re- a reemergence over time. And this is going to be like a pretty important um, avenue for it. It'll just take time to, to play out. And, you know, it's some of it is dependent on things that are outside of their control, like home Wi-Fi networks, right? Um, and latency issues. And so, you know, there could be some hiccups and headwinds along along the path and it takes a while to take off but same with vr um, but this ensures they're they're in the game and we'll be learning along the way yeah i mean i guess in those regards right like it's it's almost like competing with the switch or the steam deck ones that are meant to be like a a bigger experience taken with you in that situation and in that sense i feel like nintendo kind of beat them to that punch then so it's like they're playing catch up in a way there because they they never really like were able to hold on to their handhelds that they did put out long enough to get like serious like game boy level traction so i guess it makes sense like you said if they're just trying to like keep their their toe in the door but i mean in terms of like streaming people really trying to like you know make things work even if it's you know maybe not doing what they want ubisoft trying to do some stuff here with activision blizzard anil <laughs> wow this i would ask myself is this you know another round table unless aaron bush says something about microsoft and activision we all know Here the answer go. to that it question. has to happen exactly so <laughs> so i didn't want to disappoint him and i had to talk about him but this story continues to, to develop in crazy crazy turns so <laughs> what happened this week well this topic is about ubisoft what's happened to do with activision blizzard so what's happened is that ubisoft plus is now going to be streaming and they, they have the right to the Activision back catalog and all future games as well on, on their service. And it's pretty funny. If you read their press statement, they even start with, yes, you read that right, Activision Blizzard games coming to Ubisoft. So they have an agreement which will give Ubisoft cloud streaming rights to games like Call of Duty and more come into effect upon the completion of Microsoft acquisition of Activision Blizzard, which is interesting. The agreement includes a complete state of current Activision Blizzard games, as well as all of the new titles launching in the 15 years after the closing, 15 years, uh, acquisition of the acquisition. And the games will land on Ubisoft, while also allowing Ubisoft to license them to cloud game, com- cloud game companies, service providers, or console makers. So quite a lot to get your head around. I got to be honest with you, I didn't even know there was an Ubisoft Plus before I read this news announcement. So that was pretty big deal for me. Um, And then finding out about it. And 
I, I, well, I kind of know why this is going to happen, but I, I'd rather sort of just pass it off straight out there because that is a big deal. Why would they do this? What's the benefit for? Who's it servicing? Where has Ubisoft come from all of a sudden? The plot thickens. It's just hilarious to me that Ubisoft could potentially be the savior of the Activision Microsoft <laughs> deal in some way. Like, who would have guessed that? Probably not a single person um, on the world. So it just cracks me up. But, you know, the purpose of the deal is to give the CMA one last final major concession so that they approve the acquisition. And that's likely going to happen now, mainly because the CMA is the final holdout. And what's interesting to me um, about this is that Ubisoft gets the rights to decide what to do with Activision's cloud gaming assets. Um, the most important of which is obviously future Call of Duty games. And everything of, will likely, of course, land on Ubisoft Plus, not in any exclusive capacity. But it means that Ubisoft gets to determine how to sell the rights. And naturally, Ubisoft being in the driver's seat and paying a fee for it has different incentives than if Microsoft were to hold the rights themselves. So I think that's what will probably sway the, the CMA, if I had to guess. But, but here's what this changes. Previously, Microsoft was making agreements with as many cloud gaming providers as possible to allow them to sell Call of Duty as standalone games. What this deal enables Ubisoft to do differently is that it can now strike deals that enable different business models. It can sell the rights to cloud gaming companies, including Xbox themselves and anyone else, that also extend to subscription rights. So even though this deal is centered around cloud gaming, which is overrated, we've covered that, especially for high Twitch games like Call of Duty, it enables the possibility for Call of Duty, plus whatever else Activision creates in the future, to be accessible in subscription form that's not exclusive to Game Pass. And that concession on Microsoft's part, allowing its most important franchise to not be exclusive in subscription form, is a big deal, in my opinion, especially because the term is 15 years long. And genuinely, who knows how that side of the market will be different 10 to 15 years from now, right? So in the large scheme of things, it is a fairly small concession. Um, and in reality, a vast, vast majority of Call of Duty players will not choose to play on third-party cloud subscriptions. Um, but for the regulators who are maniacally focused on cloud gaming, it is a big concession, and it should be the final push to get over the finish line. So that's why... That get it through in the UK, for sure. That, it must yeah. have been done for that reason. Can I ask, was, was there any language around... Um, like the timing of access to these titles for, for Ubisoft. So like, do they get Call of Duty at launch or do they get it, you know, some delay after it comes out? Because like, it's great to have it for 15 years. Um, I guess the flip side of that is Call of Duty doesn't necessarily have a ton of staying power when it gets released every year. Like I don't go back and play Madden 21 when I have Madden 23. Uh, I think Call of Duty... Not exactly the same, but they, they're releasing a new product every year and shifting the audience to the new iteration. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious. It doesn't, it doesn't mention um, sort of day and date on that. So I suppose you could interpret that as being um, slightly, you know, ambiguous. But I, I, I take from a language that it would be available on launch of the title because it does say launch of the titles. But I get what you're saying is they could do like the console exclusive where, yeah, sure, you do get Call of Duty, but you get a six months exclusive on 
the game parts. But I believe that what it is is that, yeah, it's just to get around the red tape, right? So they can now say that, well, we don't own the rights to it. Those rights actually belong to Ubisoft. Yes, they do actually happen to pay us for a game license, which just so happens to be the same amount of money that we pay for their their streaming. But, you know, we don't own the rights to it. Therefore, it's not anti-competitive. Therefore, let the deal go through. Um, Yeah, I find it hilarious. Like, that was definitely not on my 2023 bingo card. You would have got high points for Ubisoft saves uh, Microsoft Activision deal and going through. And what I want to ask, though, is that, well, that is, for that to happen, what does that mean? Does that mean that we will see Ubisoft stuff come part of the gaming pass or, or being merged in some way? Like, it seems like a very... I didn't really think those two companies... I wouldn't say they were antagonistic against one another, but I didn't really have them down as being, you know, great buddies or to help one out. I mean, that's like a huge favor to be able to help. Well, they've had a variety of deals with the streaming services that kind of vary, right? So like um, mm-hmm. Stadia, they had one kind of deal with. Uh, then like they have a different one with Luna where they're, like, they're their own channel stuff like that. So they seem to make kind of different deals with different streaming services in terms of like, do you have to have Ubisoft off plus to do it? Or is it just like stuff that's like part of the past itself? Most of the time they seem to lean towards if you want to play the Ubisoft games, you have to have the Ubisoft plus subscription as part of it or buy the games individually, like with Stadia where it was like, you can buy them individually, but if you have like, there was a point where I did that with Stadia where it was like cheaper for me when, when siege came out, to play it with Ubisoft Plus for $15 a month than to spend a bunch of money to buy the game again on there like and and also to uh, unlock all the operators and things like that. So like sometimes there, there are times where it makes sense, especially when they put their like brand new day one releases on Ubisoft Plus stuff, but it depends on like which platform you can play that on. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if they like do it a, 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 maybe a different deal for Microsoft because like you guys said, they're in the driver's seat on Microsoft that if Microsoft's like, kind of being a jerk about it. You'd be like, well, you know, I don't know if our games day one are on Game Pass, you know? Yeah, there could be some quid pro quo relationship that goes on here. Activision games on Ubisoft Plus, some Ubisoft games on on Game Pass. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think the Ubisoft Plus part of this is just kind of like a footnote. Like, talking seriously about Ubisoft Plus, like being a competitor and the subscription market is like talking about paramount plus competing with netflix seriously like it just like it doesn't really make sense like for ubisoft to compete more in subscription like they're just gonna have to be part of a bigger company or like figure figure something else out um but it is it is interesting but my my more like tinfoil hat speculation or extrapolation here it just kind of hinges on the fact of how long term this this deal is and how um, it's kind of important to maybe not, you know, take the current state of the games industry as like the analytical lens of like what this could mean, because 10 to 15 years from now, the state of cloud gaming of the ecosystem, who is even involved could be totally different. So on one hand, yeah, maybe at some point, Sony, you know, Ubisoft sells Sony Call of Duty cloud gaming streaming rights. And it's part of their bundle. And that doesn't differentiate from Game Pass as much. But the one like, uh, more potentially long shot example is like, what if they sold to um, like Netflix? Because we know that Netflix, you know, they have a larger audience base than anyone. They're going to have as good of tech as anyone. They're, you know, approaching games. They have an enormous budget 
for licensing and originals. And would it really be that surprising 10 years from now to see, and this kind of setup to see like Ubisoft sell Call of Duty, Activision cloud streaming rights to someone like Netflix, and with Netflix's distribution, just be able to like actually have a pretty monumental twist on like how a game, how franchises like Call of Duty is consumed. I don't know. Maybe that's crazy talk. It's hard to say, but just because like this deal is so long term, it like it opens up a potential can of worms down the line for some funky things to potentially happen when Microsoft is not in the driver's seat of how these how these uh, you know deals are made. And that's interesting to me. It could bite Game Pass um, down down the line, maybe not in a huge way, but in some funky ways that we can't easily predict right now. And that's that's interesting to me. Well, you're talking about the time duration, but the question is, is there any way, is there any like clauses that allow them to break that deal? So let's say they do this to get things through. Then a year or two from now, they were actually already planning on breaking the deal through some kind of thing that, you know, allows them to do that. If it's if it's if it's a regulatory related deal that the entire acquisition hinges on it, I doubt. It'll probably be more ironclad, I would guess. But yeah, don't know. And you guys keep talking about Call of Duty, but I, I got a big question about Blizzard because, like, Blizzard's part of this. They're not on Game Pass right now. You don't play Diablo Four on there. You can't play World of Warcraft on there or Overwatch Two even. Or like, none of that stuff's on there. So the question is, does then Ubisoft finally go? Now you're going to put that stuff on streaming, and you're going to let people play it day one on there. Like that could be a pretty big deal. I mean, I don't know. Maybe like the relevance isn't there compared to Call of Duty in terms of numbers, but obviously Diablo Four was a pretty big deal when that came out. Well, and, that's. That's, that's what I think there. I think it's it's not like you couldn't do it, but the audience is so different, right? Call of Duty is always one of those games that kind of like even people who don't like games buy that game. Like your friend that has a PlayStation that only ever buys two games, those two games are going to be Call of Duty and either Madden or FIFA, depending on what Right, but, but Dabble's right? been moving over to console more and more, right, for example? So like this is an opportunity for them to get people to to move over to like trying it out if it's on game pass for example or some other would, console would you Devin, play diablo on the streaming software absolutely streaming absolutely i am you I, would okay. i am i, I would say that a hardcore that person i'll play cloud all day long like i, I okay, like cloud gaming okay. i have game pass yeah. ultimate uh i would absolutely do it yeah i i would have been playing diablo that way and not purchased it had it had that option 100 percent Especially a game like that, it's not as twitch as Call of Duty. I That's mean, you're true. you're clicking a mouse or, or playing with a controller. And to be honest, actually, the controller uh, controls are pretty good in that game. So, it, it, I think I think it's one of those things where, like, you know, we kind of joke about it, but I think it is a play for the future, just the long term future when we don't have those silly Wi Fi problems or like, uh, you know, when the cloud is just like, oh yeah, everything's in the cloud. Like, obviously, like you know, this is maybe that 15 year plan is like hoping that by year 15, maybe people will start to, to care about cloud then. And until that point, people, but obviously Microsoft's been betting a lot on that with game pass, but I feel like that's been more towards the subscription model than the game. Or I mean, in the cloud side, but I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I think it'd be even funnier if they were somehow allowed to buy Ubisoft after this, get those rights right back. Right. Cause Ubisoft's wow, been in that, dire situations, that, right? Where that's, that's actually where I was going to. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think they happens. could get away with it yeah. given the situation, but I don't know anymore. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, they can make yeah. new concessions, I guess. Right. That was definitely my tin hat, you know, foil tin right. hat moment. You can have these rights, but we're going to buy you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but, uh, it is, it is a win for Ubisoft though. Like long-term, like having these rights to sell probably doesn't move the needle that 
much. Um, but uh, we don't really know the terms. Um, but having what is essentially like a very low variable cost thing that just falls onto your lap that you can sell for a profit at a time when the company is trying to save money and turn out more of a profit. Um, it's a nice little, it's a nice little extra thing to have in your back pocket. And so I noticed like Ubisoft, you know, like the stock reacted favorably to this. No one really knows what it means in terms of the specific numbers, but good timing for, for Ubisoft to, to pull this off. They kind of win just by hanging around, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, <they survive>. like, <laughs> you know, the only other companies of their size that like might have been able to pull this off, uh, EA, they've already sort of capitulated to Game Pass. All of their stuff is on Game Pass already. Um, and then uh, Take Two, I don't think really has like a you know streaming cloud gaming offering of their own. So there's probably a couple others I'm uh, forgetting here. But Ubisoft, you know, they have their Ubisoft Plus, and they kind of just win by, I guess, also you know, being uh, more of a European-based publisher as well um, to, you know, appease the regulators over there, but they just kind of benefit by hanging around here. Well, don't forget they have some expertise in this because, like I said, they license all these different different deals with different streaming uh, services. They have the ability to kind of run their right, own catalog right. side by side with it. I mean, like I said, they have their own dedicated like a uh, subscription to Luna, where it's just Ubisoft games. So, like, I think at least on the deal side, they are good at managing this stuff. Whether or not you know they have the subscriber numbers to like back up their success, at least they've got like the uh, the the making those licensing deals chops kind of thing. So I think. Like for Microsoft, it makes sense because you could go like, well, who's actually been successful at doing this, negotiating with all these different cloud services, putting their games on multiple ones and actually running that in ways that are favorable to them? Like that would be Ubisoft. I mean, there might be some other candidates, but I would say like they've been the most prolific. I mean, they were the ones who helped pioneer Stadia. Like the original Stadia, like before it had a name, was an Ubisoft game pushed onto the cloud when Google was just testing cloud gaming so like i don't know like i obviously i'm i'm in favor of cloud stuff but i do think they were a good choice you certainly could have gone with a worse company and i don't think it's just like they just happened to be in the street corner when microsoft walked out the door i think it's just like hey you know what you're you're a pretty good candidate we got to pick someone and like you guys said european company probably doesn't hurt so and we'll see but uh i mean that's going east we've got companies going west as well netties Coming out of uh, out of Asia, trying to move into our territory here. Uh, yeah, so uh, NetEase, I think, is an interesting topic to revisit here, and it has a, a few parallels to the C Garena discussion we had earlier. Um, but the the headline that prompted this was um, NetEase has launched a, a new development studio in Austin, Texas. And it's being led by uh, Rich Vogel, who has experience on Ultima and Star Wars Old Republic, a lot of sort of classic MMOs, other uh, veterans joining him from Bethesda and Bioware. Um, And less so much about this specific studio, but like it got me thinking that I've sort of seen a number of announcements like this where NetEase was opening a new studio or acquiring a studio in the West. And so I just, I did a little bit of digging and wanted to kind of, uh, briefly list off some of the investments and studios they've opened up in the last, call it three or four years, and then we can talk a little bit about like the strategy there. Um, so I just met, mentioned um, this one in Austin, Austin called T Minus Zero Entertainment. Okay, so probably 
uh, MMO. What they've said is third-person online multiplayer action game based on a sci-fi IP, new sci-fi IP. Okay, that's one. Um, there was also Anchor Point Studios earlier this year. They're split between Barcelona and Seattle, and they're making action-adventure titles for both console and PC. They're led by the ex-lead designer of Control and Alan Wake, Alan Wake 2. Um, so that's another uh, another Western studio split between U.S. and Europe. Uh, they've opened an internal studio in uh, Canada split between Toronto and Montreal called Bad Brain Games, working on open-world, multi-platform title, uh, inspired by cult cinema, mixing elements of adventure and horror. Um, they also acquired Skybox Labs in Canada, uh, British Columbia. They co-developed uh, Halo Infinite, so more of like a third-party studio. Um, and they, they're talking about they're going to kind of continue their co-dev work. Um, they also now, th- 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 that's all just 2023. Um, going back to last year, they acquired um, or acquired or opened, I'm not sure, I think opened a studio called Jar of Sparks just across the border in Seattle. Um, so if you're keeping track, that's the second one in Seattle now. Um, they're, uh, they also worked on Halo Infinite, the, the leaders of that studio. Then um, earlier in that year, they had a, a studio that they acquired or, or started up called Jackalope, which has rebranded to Jackalyptic. I don't know why, um, but they're, making, they're working on a, another MMO uh, based on the Warhammer IP, they're working closely with Games Workshop, the purveyors of that IP. Um, and then they also acquired Quantic Dream in 2022 uh, from Paris. They developed Heavy Rain, Detroit Become Human, and they're working on a Star Wars action adventure branching narrative game. Uh, and that's just up to 2022. They've also done a bunch of smaller investments in studios. Um, they invested in a studio founded by some ex CD project devs. They've invested in Behavior Interactive in Montreal. They make Dead by Daylight. Um, They also opened an internal development studio in Montreal. So they've got these hubs, right? Um, Different parts. of They've got BC. They've got Montreal and Toronto and Canada. They've got Seattle. They've got Austin. They've got a couple others in Western Europe. And so they're making this push. And sort of what I make of it is these are like AAA uh, PC console companies. uh, projects, developers with, you know, real pedigree. Um, and they're working on um, a lot of big scope games, MMOs, open world, action adventure. They've got some IPs in there. We mentioned Warhammer. We mentioned Star Wars. Um, in recent years, they've also done like a Harry Potter game. They've done a Lord of the Rings game. Um, so, you know, I guess there's a couple things I wanted to to talk about here. Like, one, like, what do we make of this strategy uh, to go so heavy into to AAA PC console? Um, you know, historically, they're a very mobile-centric company. Uh, in the, the first quarter of this year, 72.3% of NetEase's revenue was from mobile games, actually. Um, so, you know, do we think this is the right move for the company? I'll, I'll just pause there. There's, there's more we can talk about, but let's just start there. Like, making the shift from mobile to... To AAA PC console, what do y'all make of this? That's an interesting one. I'm going to sort of slightly deflect your question, but Please. answer it in the same time, which is that I was going to say that NetEase in, paid for everything for Second Dinner, who made Marvel Snap, which, as we know, is oh, a yeah. particular favorite game of Mr. Devin Becker here on, on the round. Just table. launched on PC. Make sure to download on Steam. Well, it's interesting that you should mention that, right? So that could well tie into their strategy. That's what I was going to come to next. But I was just going to say, though, that I feel that game has really done well, not just 
maybe commercially it could have done better, but I would say in terms of critique, it's really considered to be probably the best mobile game of the last 12 months. So I, I, I would understand that, like, coming to your point, why invest so much in Western studios? It could just, and, and particularly AAA, is that they want to hoover up that kind of talent. Maybe the bet they're making is that that's the more consistent way to do it. Just get people who are really proven, great track record, really back them to the hill, and they'll make good stuff. So that's where I think that angle is coming from. I have to say the PC thing is very interesting, right? Maybe they think, though, that future growth is going to be happening more there than it is going to be happening on mobile, that maybe mobile is more of a closed shop, or maybe they see it as that's a good place to start new IP. And once the IP reaches a certain level, you move it across. NetEase are an interesting company. I've seen already that they, for example, are testing out quite a few extraction shooters on mobile right now globally. They have a lot of downloads, but they haven't quite made it to, okay, this is going to be the next big thing sort of thing. But they seem quite experimental and open to trying things. So I guess that's what I'm saying is I could see them, for example, looking to establish new IPs with hit studios and teams that are proven. And then mobile is like a ladder down the road. I mean, it's one of those that I do know people that work with NetEase and they sometimes even say with some of the studios that they acquired that they laugh when they see their profit projections because it's just like <laughs> compared to what we make in China, oh, that's cute with your projected, you know, revenues for the next 10 years even. That is not even a, you know, a teardrop in the ocean of what they make. And so they are operating on extremely long time scales. But I'll hand over to you, but that's my initial thoughts on it. Yeah, to me... It just seems like a diversification play, like most of their revenues from China. Obviously, China is very mobile first. Um, they want more revenue from the West. They are. It's not like they're not making mobile games. They they still are investing yeah. in that. It's just now they're also investing into um, AAA console PC, which makes sense. Also, just given all of the mobile headwinds that we've talked about the past couple of years to just want to diversify and get exposure to to, to other parts of the market. Um, the, the part of this that kind of intrigues me more than just like choosing to expand into new platforms is more like the patterns that you start to see in, um, you know, how they're just like how they are choosing to expand in the West, which is that if you look, none of the acquisitions are US based. But also, you know, if you look at that list you said, Matt, um, pretty much all of the new studio creations are US based. And mm. that's just totally like a signal of just the geopolitical climate where in general, like these big Chinese companies, like they're just not gonna be able to pull off like big MA in the West generally, but especially in the US right now but they still want access to the market. And so they're going to find other ways to do it that um, you know, don't trigger, trigger regulators as much. You don't have to go through all these federal agencies. And building studios from scratch um, is a way to do that. Um, in some ways, it's more risky because you're not buying what you already know works that already has teams that are successful um, it also takes longer to play out because you don't get the immediate revenue. Instead, you're basically signing up for a bunch of upfront costs, and then the revenue will come down the line. But if you're right and you do a good job, the payoff is potentially larger. And so you get potentially larger payoffs while having skirted you know, all of those regulatory hurdles, potentially. And so it's interesting to me. And they're doing it in like pretty aggressive full force. Um, because I think they <laughs> see 
that getting diversification as quickly as possible, given just like the uncertainty of China and specifically, um, makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, it's just it'll be interesting to see what this turns into. And just like as we look at like the percentage of revenue or games that are hits like in the US or just in kind of the West more broadly that are China backed (laughs) in some way, it kind of looks like that might increase uh, as a percentage because it's also not just NetEase, right? Tencent's doing similar similar things here. Um, so that'll be an interesting trend to watch. But yeah, how they're going about it is what's interesting to me. Right. You, you raised some interesting points um, about the sort of context this is all happening within that, that we haven't really mentioned. I mean, uh, the the environment for making games in China has been um, let, let's say in flux, like earlier this year, they restarted game approvals, I think in like April. Um, so that's been sort of uh, building up a backlog of new releases in, in China, just trying to get into that market for internal, like domestic and international developers alike. Um, they've also had a bunch of restrictions they put into place on young people playing games. Um, and there's been a general slowdown in um, the Chinese economy at a high level. Um, and, um, I don't know, it's just interesting context. Like we mentioned, we talked about earlier with Garena losing the rights to distribute riot games in Southeast Asia. Well, NetEase also lost the blizzard rights, um, to do everything except Diablo immortal at this point is my understanding. Um, so they're losing some of their presence in PC console domestically to your point around diversification, Aaron. Um, so yes, Tencent is also facing these same pressures and I think they're just, uh, NetEase is choosing to go about this in a similar but slightly different way um, in terms of like establishing new studios, as you say, acquiring where they can um, and taking a long, long view of this. I guess my question that I would pose back to you all is like, how, what are the important ways that this differs from similarly acquisitive strategies that we've seen with like a Embracer or a Stillfront um, where they're just like, grabbing up talent, grabbing up IPs, and they're maybe struggling to turn it into, um, you know, uh, solid projects that are returning that value. Uh, What what do we see as like the kind of key differences there? Will they not encounter the same challenges? I I don't think there are that many differences, to be honest. Interesting. It does feel a little bit like history repeating itself. I've seen things like this happen already with NetEase. So they they do it. I, I just guess to them, as per Aaron's point about diversification, if the opportunity opportunity cost isn't that great, you know, it's not that much for them to spend and the return is incredible, it's still worth doing. Um, I, I do agree there's clearly a, a, a shift. That's why, again, a hint that maybe the success of some of those studios may be making them think that, okay, it's worked once, we can try it again. Um, but I, I wouldn't really expect to see that much different. I think that you will still see a lot of these studios end up closing, still having made a great game, it just doesn't hit commercially because they're going to have huge expectations with the titles you know, and the budget that's put there. But, you know, you make one unicorn IP and these outlays are worth it, right? That's that's probably how I would see it. Perhaps I'm naive to think so. Yeah, I think I disagree a bit. I think with like the embracers of the world, it's it's much more financial engineering involved. And so like we talked about Embracer, how they grew their revenue 150x over the past you know handful of years while the, while the stock price remained flat because they actually didn't create value while doing that. Like that's probably not going to be as possible in this type of scenario. Also in the embracer model, like when you're just heavily acquisitive, 
you are you're just going to be probably more bloated um, and have to unwind more big things there. And also, uh, there at least from what traditionally has been that model, you're just less focused on organic growth and just more on inorganic growth. And your growth engine really is about continued acquisitions. And that has fallen apart because it's not really a sustainable way to operate. And those companies are struggling. But I don't really think that's what NetEase is doing here. If anything, it's more of like a venture model in a sense where they're taking a bunch of like like bets more at ground zero. And some of them probably won't pay off. But even a handful of those that do might make up for the rest and, and still be pretty profitable. You still might have to unwind things. Not everything's going to be ROI positive. Um, so there aren't differences from that sense. But I think from kind of like the bottoms up economics, it is different. It doesn't mean it's going to work. They still have to be good at it, but it's a bit bit different, I think. There's a different angle to consider just looking at the pattern of both stuff that they do and some of the people they're acquiring is, is around MMOs and IP in, in the sense that like those are two areas that they know well, working with other people's IP and doing MMOs, both their own and like doing so like the Marvel games that they do, you know, the, the big MMOs around that. They also have ported MMOs like Eve over to mobile. So they know MMOs well and they know working with other people's IP well. So like even these studios that aren't currently working with other people's IP are often people coming from studios that have worked on other people's IP. So this seems like if they're especially trying to take advantage of like, I got to imagine they make good money with Marvel, right? And that's not a Chinese IP. That's a Western IP like situation where it's like, hey, if we could get access to all these devs, and I'm not saying this is like their only reason, but this seems like something that they can leverage access to all these devs that, that are experienced and working with this IP. We can start to broker all these deals with different IP that we know we can make these deals with because they have before and start to actually really develop with existing IP rather than just always trying to build stuff from scratch, you know, betting on those successes. If you're talking about it, it's like a venture capital thing. They're betting on people that they know are successful. They're betting on franchises and IP that they know are successful. And they're betting on MMOs, which they know work well for long-term retention and things like that if they can get them off the ground, especially if there's IP attached to it. So it seems like there's like a lot of areas that they know well that they're like leveraging to an extent, whether or not that's like their main purpose, like that's something they seem to be targeting to an extent. And, and you know, as you guys said, moving West to do so, especially if China doesn't have IP that they're really able to take advantage of. I mean, obviously they have the MMO and the mobile market, but if that's kind of shutting down and not really like, uh, like licensing new stuff, things like that, it does make sense to do this. I think the question is like when they buy these though, what I want to know is like, are they using these studios as outsourced devs or are they just brokering deals as like a parent company? Uh, like how involved is NetEase and in like a, a game development level with these companies? Or are they just like, Hey, cool. Keep making games. We're just going to be there to like collect money from it. From what I've read um, and maybe you've heard differently, Anil, but um, the, at least the press releases, they'll say like, oh, the reason we went with NetEase is because they promised editorial freedom, uh, creative freedom. I don't know if that's the case for all of them. Like, you know, like I mentioned, Skybox Labs, for example, was a co-dev shop and they're supposed to be continuing their co-dev work. Um, but you know, some of these other ones they've invested in have stated in their press releases, at least like, Hey, we liked NetEase because they were hands off. Keep doing what you're doing. Quantum Marvel Dream is a good example same thing, of that. basically as well. Yeah. That's the example I was going to give. I don't think they're very hands-on. They just do it for the P and L. Yeah. It seems to be working out for them for the most. I mean, obviously, like, well, we'd have to look at all of it. Like, I just wonder if we will come back to to discuss this, like, an embracer kind of deal with a very different angle to it down the road to say, like, is this strategy working for them long term? 
when we can see what these companies are doing and whether or not like obviously second dinner dinner was an example of like a new company that was successful but again it was coming from a company that like they knew they were like talented people coming from a game that was pretty successful hearthstone like trying to do something with an existing ip marvel so it's like it's not like they're making like blind bets in the dark it sounds like they're you know they're picking their targets pretty smartly i don't know if all of them will pay off but it definitely seems to be like a good strategy we'll see though Obviously, uh, I don't think they're all going to be Marvel Snap type wins, but uh, I, I would like to see how some of these turn out. Like, it's definitely uh, a situation where, you know, some money and some acquisition stuff and maybe even some resources put their way. Like, I do think they probably at least contribute some level of resources and connections could just help these smaller startup ones, like actually become more successful with people that are talented to be able to leverage NetEase's connections or assets. Um, like, I think this is actually probably a good thing for some Western devs, like like what we saw with, with Second Dinner being able to leverage that to do something that was a little bit of a gamble for them, but that they were talented enough to execute on. So hopefully that'll be the story like more often than not with these guys. And it won't be an embracer kind of like, let's just scoop up a bunch of companies and then like try and collect some checks, call it a day kind of thing. So, cause that's obviously starting to scale back for embracer. So hopefully that will be the situation here. But I think judging by Matt, you say that most of these were like in 2023, I think we're probably gonna have to wait a little bit of time to see whether or not this plan pays off unless, unless they found a way to speed up game dev, which uh, I don't yeah. think they have that fast. This is going to be a check back in three to five years situation. Right. Well, hopefully we'll get a chance to check back in at least like six months to a year uh, on this round table while we're all still alive and, and not in the cloud yet uh, or Microsoft or Ubisoft's cloud. But, <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you guys all for, for the great topics today. Great conversation. Of course, as always, lots of fun topics. Like you, we always say, we will be revisiting many of these. And of course, Microsoft Activision Blizzard will never uh, escape our, our uh, discussion at some point here. Like they'll find some way to stay as part of it. So, uh, so definitely make sure to, at least when Aaron's on, uh, keep that going. So, but uh, th- thank you guys for, for joining. And of course, uh, thank you guys for listening again, as always, make sure to hit up uh, our mailbag. If you have questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, anything to podcast at novic.co. Of course, make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter because we are still putting out lots of good stuff there. So make sure to catch that as well. If you weren't already. And of course, if you're, you know, checking this out for the first time, make sure to subscribe, Spotify, things like that, YouTube, wherever you're checking it out. And of course we will catch you guys next time. But in the meantime, enjoy your weekend. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.